Hey there, and welcome to the Box Office Watch podcast, where we keep watch on how much money movies are making and why. This is the show for the weekend of May 8th through May 10th, 2020. My name is Paulo, and I'm your host. So as promised last week, we're going to be looking at Deadline's biggest bombs of 2019, as well as their best-performing small films, which is defined as having less than $50 million for their budget. Uh, there are also some interesting articles related to some of these films regarding, regarding creative Hollywood accounting and how that affects the ongoing trolls, world tour situation. Before all that, though, uh, one bit of news that actually stood out to me this week, China has officially allowed for theaters to open again, provided they comply with regulations such as social distancing, reduced capacity, improved ventilation, and strict cleaning procedures. Perhaps most interesting is that there's a list of films floating around online of Hollywood films that are rumored to be or confirmed to be re-released to ease people back into theaters before they show some new stuff. Uh, These include releases for some films from uh, releases of some films from this and last year, such as various Oscars contenders, Sonic the Hedgehog, Bad Boys for Life, and The Invisible Man, as well as re-releases for classic films like Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stones, which somehow hasn't broken $1 billion yet, so maybe China will get them there, uh, Lord of the Rings, Inception, Interstellar, Blade Runner, and most notably, all four Avengers films, as well as James Cameron's Avatar. So the battle for number one in the world might go on between Avatar and Avengers once more. But on to our main topic. Uh, Let's dig into the biggest bombs, according to Deadline's reporting. Uh, We only have five here, uh, but they are doozies. Uh, So in order, these were Fox's X-Men Dark Phoenix with a loss of $133 million, Paramount's Terminator Dark Fate with a loss of $122.6 million. Universal's Cats with a loss of $113 million. Paramount's Gemini, Gemini Man with a loss of $111.1 million. And Lycus Missing Link with a loss of $101.3 million. So, you know, if we look at the numbers of the biggest success from last year and compare it to these films, what are the big differences? For one... These films were all mostly focused on international sales. The exception of Missing Link, uh, for every $100 made at the domestic box office, the other four films made on average $197 million abroad. In comparison, the top successful films only made about $135 million domestically for every, sorry, $135 for every $100 they made in, in the domestic box office. Now, some films did amazingly abroad such as, you know, Joker and Hobbs and Saw. Uh, these are the successful films, making uh, $220 for every $100 domestic. Um, but they are the exceptions and not the rule. Uh, in addition, China makes up a significant share for the three films that did release there, Dark Phoenix, Terminator, and Gemini Man. Uh, they, for every $100 made at the domestic box office, they made between 70 and 90 in China. In comparison, again, with the exception of Avengers Endgame, which made $72 in China for every $100 domestic, and Hobbs and Saw, which made $116 in China for every $100 in the domestic, most successful films last year didn't have much coming from China. Uh, The next closest is Spider-Man Far From Home, which made $51 for every $100 made in the U.S. And this averages out to actually about $32 for every $100 made in the U.S., $21 if you exclude Endgame and Hobbs and Saw. Now, you might be wondering, you know, why do these films having a large share of international and China dollars hurt their bottom line? Well, if a film you're making is more reliant on revenues from international markets and you're not an international film, you know, um, 
you are going to get a smaller share of the domestic uh, of the of the gross box office from those films. Remember, you only get forty percent of revenue from international market grosses and only twenty five percent from China in comparison to the fifty percent you would make here in the states. So, films that are more weighted toward non domestic markets won't do as well unless you somehow end up being part of a China production company and get a larger share of the revenue there. Looking at these films' total gross total gross box office, you can also find you can find comparables with the profitable films to see where else they they screwed up. Uh, and you know, the, one one area that stands out is the home entertainment and TV rights line item. Uh, on average, the total box office for these films uh, was about 157 million dollars, which you know ranges from Terminator's 260 million to Missing Link's 26 million. Um, you know that 157 million average is pretty close to the numbers that Hustlers put out, um, the 25 25th most profitable film. They also grossed pretty much on the dot 157 million dollars at the back at the box office. Now, looking at the home entertainment numbers, Hustlers made $30 million in home entertainment sales, while on average, the home entertainment for these five films was $20 million. In fact, you know, this is weighed up by Dark Phoenix and Terminator, uh, sequels to huge franchises you know, that actually helped define some of the respective genres. You know, X-Men helped define what the superhero genre would be. Terminator helped define you know, science fiction many decades ago. Um, they made as much on home entertainment as Hustlers, but obviously we'll talk about this later, the, the budget was definitely not comparable. You know, $200 budget or $185 budget films versus Hustlers, which budget was only $20 million, and yet they made the same amount of money on the, on the uh, home media. You know, looking at TV rights, uh, some uh, M Night Shyamalan's Glass uh, made just under two hundred fifty million at the box office, made ninety seven million on film rights. Uh, meanwhile, Dark Phoenix and Terminator, which you know made between two fifty to sixty million at the box office, were only able to nab eighty million for TV rights, so about seventeen million dollars less. Um, so you know, in general, compared to films that were more profitable, for one reason or another, these studios weren't able to negotiate a higher um, TV rights and uh, TV rights and, and home and weren't able to sell as much home entertainment. You know, probably due to like, the lower received critic score on these films. Um, you know, and you know. All these new numbers actually give me a chance to answer a question I've been asking for a while. You know, how closely related is the film's box office numbers with home entertainment and TV rights revenue numbers? You know, so in light of Kroll's Walter coming straight to PVOD, uh, I posited and I can I I assume that a film that makes more at the box office uh, than a similar film in the similar genre would be able to demand higher TV rights, and so you know, and also more people would end up buying that film on home entertainment. Um, so you know, this would allow studios to double dip on a film with a theatrical and home release. It's kind of a snowball effect. You do good at the uh, box office, you end up doing well in home entertainment and TV rights sales. So what I did. Uh, was I took the top 25 blockbusters uh, as well as these five biggest bombs and then the five top small films we'll talk about in a little bit and used the very complicated mathematics of plugging these numbers into an Excel sheet and using the formula equals R squared to calculate the R squared value. Um, in layman's terms for statistics, this would basically tell us how much one variable, in this case, uh, the amount of worldwide box office gross, uh, how closely related and how closely it explains uh, the TV rights and the home entertainment sales. So the closer this number is to positive one, uh, the more closely related they are with a one, meaning that it exactly predicts it. A negative one uh, would basically say it, it 
completely predictable but in the opposite direction where when one goes up, the other goes down. So the numbers here are pretty telling. Uh, the R squared, R squared value of home entertainment uh, compared to the box office revenue was 0.9683, uh, which is very close to that one value we're looking for. Um, TV rights was a little bit less correlated. The R squared value was only 0. 0.8, 0. 0.8853, um, but still that's pretty pretty well related you know over half you know over uh, al almost four fifths of the explanation on you know how much uh, studios are able to get for uh, you know a film on TV rights comes down to how well it is at the box office now of course you know it's been many years since I've done you know college level statistics uh, so if someone wants to at me on Twitter and correct me on my statistical analysis please feel free to reach out and let me know how much I borked this um, but yeah, so moving on. Uh, so obviously we looked at you know revenue sources, the um, box office, how how much how much it compared there, as well as um, the you know ancillary revenue from TV and home entertainment. But on the other side, you have costs, um, and really the reason these films underperformed uh, is that their budgets were just so high that they ended up not being able to make enough money to make it back. Um, Dark Phoenix's production budget was $200 million. Terminator's was $185 million. Cats was $95 million. Gemini Man was $138 million. And Missing Link was $102 million. So for a Dark Phoenix comparable on the budget side, Hobbs and Saw was also a big blockbuster action film that cost $200 million to make. However, total box office for Hobbs and Shaw was $759 million, while Dark Phoenix only made $250 million. Um, and depending on the region you looked at, domestic international China, uh, Dark Phoenix uh, made 2.5 to 3.5 less uh, than, you know, times less than what uh, Hobbs and Shaw made. Uh, if you want to compare with total box office, Glass, you know, is another finale uh, to a superhero series, made just under $250 million. Uh, again, you know, that's also what Dark Phoenix made, about $250 million. However, its budget uh, was only twenty million compared to the two hundred million that uh, Dark Phoenix cost, and you know Glass didn't even release in China, which Dark Phoenix did. And if you include the relatively high participations that M Night Shyamalan and you know Sam Jackson and everyone else likely had on Glass, you know the total production cost, you know, is the next another fifty million. That gets out to seventy million, which is still less than half of what it cost Dark Phoenix on budget alone. One other thing that kind of stands out to me is actually the lack of marketing for some of these films. Uh, most films with a budget of, you know, call it $150 million plus, uh, which is the case for, you know, th uh, three of these films here, um, and that they're releasing in China, you know, they have at least another $150 million earmarked for marketing. However, Dark Phoenix and Terminator had less than this. They only had $90 million and $100 million uh, in marketing uh, respectively. Now, this could be seen in two ways. Uh, one, on one hand, if the studio felt these films were just going to flop, not be successful, you know, you, you don't want to throw good dollars after bad dollars, um, and you know, don't want to spend more than they needed to, uh, you know, um, and just driving up the cost and, and hurting the profit, the already bad profitability. On the other hand, though, uh, with less marketing out there, you know, few people are going to go see the film if you're not promoting it as much. Um, and the fact that these two film, you know, and so if you have less people going to see the film, you're going to make less money. So it's kind of like a chicken in the egg situation. Now, one thing is that uh, two of these films, Gemini Man and um, Terminator, uh, they are... They are both Paramount films, and that's a studio that did not have a film in our top 25 of last year. 
So that may speak to something with Paramount just not being able to market effectively um, or their marketing dollars were just not, you know, they don't know how to put together a good marketing plan. Um, now, there's an exception to this, a Leica, which is the the, the studio, the stop motion studio behind Missing Link. Uh, they sold the rights for its international release, so they got fifty million from that, which is fine. Only that's still you know about half of what their budget was, um, and you know they needed to, so all they needed to focus on was marketing it domestically. Another studio that did this uh, last year was Lionsgate, and they did this with John Wick and Knives Out. Um, Leica seems to have put the, the amount of money, maybe a little bit less. Um, they did forty million for uh, for Missing Link compared to Lionsgate's forty eight million for John Wick and fifty million marketing for Knives Out. But again, uh, the the thing here is that the budget just was not enough, uh, or it was too much rather. Um, you know, uh, Leica's budget had a hundred million, whereas John Wick's uh, was seventy five million, and Knives Out was forty million. So you know. You're you're basically marketing this as if it were a film that had a smaller budget than it actually was when they desperately need people to go see this film. Um, but maybe fifty million is just the cap on how much you can realistically spend on marketing a film. Um, so yeah, that that huge budget really came in and bit them in the behind. Um, as did the poor reception and low domestic box office. So you know, I could go on and on with finding other comparables with other films uh, in this list, but I think the point's been made. You know, the main points are one, a combination of the high production budget, two, uh, low bo- low box office, especially on the domestic front, uh, and three, mismanaged marketing. You know, these contributed to all these films being bombs. Now, looking at a bit of a happier data set, there are let's look at the top five small films, i.e., something with less than fifty million dollars as the production budget. Uh, these are in order from most to least profitable. Uh, Sony's Escape Room, budget of nine million, uh, profit of forty six point six million. CJ, CJE's Parasite, uh, with a budget of eleven million and a profit of forty six point two million, plus a few, few Oscars. Uh, New Line's La Llorona, or The Curse of La Llorona, which is a nine million dollar budget on a forty five point six million dollar profit. Uh, Universal Beatles music pick uh, yesterday which cost $26 million and made a profit of uh, $45 million. Uh, And then Universal's R-rated comedy Good Boys with a budget of $20 million and a profit of $39 million. So first things first, obviously all these films punched above their weight in box office relative to their their budget. You know, for every $100 spent in production, uh, they ended up making $480 in domestic box office, $480 in international box office, excluding Parasite because it's originally a foreign film, but for the other four, uh, 480 in, in international box office, um, only Escape Room released in China, but it made its budget back in China, you know, 3.7 times whatever its initial budget was. Um, so yeah, looking at the split of U.S. versus international, again, excluding Parasite, uh, these films skewed mostly toward the U.S. side of things, you know, um, you know, at least 50-50, if not better, uh, with U.S. Uh, product, um, you know, Sierra Voice. Um, you know, for other sources of revenue relative to the domestic box office, uh, for every $100 made in the domestic box office, uh, they made $33 in home media and $79 in TV rights. Uh, in comparison to the bigger films, you know, the top 25, that's a little bit worse in terms of home media. Uh, they, the big films made about $36 for every $100 made in the domestic box office, but a little bit better in TV rights. You know, $71 uh, on, you know, the the uh, the 
$71 for the bigger films versus $79 for these smaller films. So, um, And these are for films that don't release in China, which most of these didn't. Um, Parasite is also a unique case in that um, CJE Entertainment, which is a Korean company, actually sold the rights uh, for Parasite's distribution to uh, Neon and other you know, distributors uh, on for other markets aside from Korea. Um, and they made $50 million on that, which, um, you know, if the budget was, you know, 11 million, they already made back the production budget, you know, four to five times over. So, you know, those are all the revenue sources, um, you know, pretty sta- close to standard for, for the ancillaries and definitely punching above the weight um, on, on, uh, on box office wise. Um, on the cost side of things, the thing that really stands out is the low cost of production. All these films were made under 30 million. Uh, f- four of them were for 20 million or less. Um, and the marketing budgets are pretty much in line for, for films of this size. If anything, they're a little bit low, um, though given that these are R-rated films or horror films, that kind of makes sense since there's a limited audience uh, to go see these films. These aren't like you know the, the G-rated, PG, wide, um, wide audience films. Now, you know, so in general, the costs are pretty, pretty much standard uh, aside from the production budget. Um, now, I did want to look more closely at one of these films uh, yesterday. Um, so while according to the numbers from this tournament sheet that Deadline posted, it was profitable to a tune of $45 million. Um, that, um, you know, we saw a report from The Hollywood Reporter um, or sorry, no, from Deadline also, uh, showing an article with a profit participation seat of an unnamed individual from you know Q4 of last year that reported a loss of the movie for $88 million. Uh, for clarity's sake, I'm going to refer to the seat of, that gives the line items with the $45 million profit as the tournament seat, um, and then the seat that shows the $88 million loss as, a particip- as the partic- participation seat. So if you remember, participations are when somebody involved in the film chooses to have a lower upfront fee or salary for their involvement in the film in exchange for a share of profits on the back end once all the money has been made. Uh, For example, Joker's official production budget was only $70 million, but participations cost an additional $105 million total for Todd Phillips, Joaquin Phoenix, among others. Um, Some say Todd Phillips made as much as $70 million on back end participations, which is good for him uh, similarly us uh the the uh film by um by Jordan Peele uh, cost $20 million to make but it had $30 million in participations and Glass the M. Night Shyamalan film we talked about earlier cost only $20 million to make but the participations were $50 million so 2.5x what the actual production cost was now, participations can come in a couple of varieties. Uh, the main types are gross participations, cash break even participations, and net profit participations. Uh, gross participations are based on gross revenue, right? You don't consider any cost. You just, what, how much money did this film make? Uh, this is obviously very lucrative um, and probably the rarest. Um, but if, you know, you're really invested, if you're really invested in the film and really taking a lower upfront salary, um, you know, this would probably be something that you could get um, as a producer. Um, for, you know, uh, cash break even and net profit, um, they basically consider some additional costs, you know, the cost of production, cost of marketing, and so on. And the exact costs, you know, I'm not going to get into the, all the specific details here, um, but, you know, net profit generally has more costs associated with it compared to cash break even. Now, 
you know, obviously, if the film is considered not profitable by whatever accounting, whatever costs they put in, then the studio doesn't have to pay out participations because you haven't broken, you know, profitability yet. Um, there's nothing to share, supposedly, with the profits. Uh, infamously, uh, the fifth Harry Potter film, uh, Order of Phoenix, you know, they made, you know, nearly or almost clo- close to a billion dollars worldwide in the box office, but somehow, through however they accounted for costs, um, it supposedly had a loss of $167 million for some participants um, at the time when a particular seat like this one leaked. So, you know, let's take a look at this yesterday's seat uh, and, you know, see at what stands out. Uh, so first off, the production cost listed in the participation seat is $41 million. Uh, this is what was actually paid out, you know, to pay the staff, pay location fees and all that, um, you know, before, now this is before any tax credits. So a lot of times, uh, you know, various governments or various locales will offer a tax incentive to people to film in their city or area, um, you know, to try to drive industry in their particular area. Uh, Famously, for example, Marvel Studios are often sought around Atlanta because the state of Georgia has tax breaks for um, movie production there, which Marvel and Disney are taking advantage of. Uh, In this case, there were $15 million in tax credits that the UK government um, gave to the production company of of yesterday um, as an incentive to the film there. Now, according to the tournament seat we saw, you know, the budget was closer to uh, 26 million or it's closer to 26 million as opposed to this 41. So this means that on this production seat, uh, they are not yet accounting for the $15 million in tax credits, which would bring down the total cost. Um, so either, you know, the tax credits haven't been paid out at this point in time uh, in Q4 of last year, or uh, these seats, you know, for whatever reason, the terms of this person's participations did not include uh, tax participation or tax credits uh, in the calculation. Um, you know, also on top of that, uh, there is an administrative fee of six million dollars as well. Um, now, the distribution expenses here are listed as eighty-one point four million dollars. Now, that's pretty close, actually, to when you look on the turn. So, this is on the participation seat, eighty-one point four million on the tournament seat uh you know we if we look at print advertising home video advertising and then residuals which based on the breakout that i could see on the tournament seat that's kind of on the participation seat that's what it looks like that holds about 84 million so give or take pretty close to what the distribution numbers look like now how so that's pretty squared away however there is a line item on the participation seat that does not appear on the production on the tournament seat and that is uh, this $22 million distribution fee. Now, as Deadline explains it, this is the overhead cost of Universal for distributing the film on top of you know, the actual cost of distribution. So cost of distribution would be, you know, um, taxes, um, you know, uh, custom fees, you know, paying paying physical people to actually go and transport goods, um, you know, transport the physical DVDs and Blu-rays to the stores. That would be in the, uh, you know, in the, in the, um, distribution fee as well as you know the cost of running an ad campaign to get these out there um however the overhead costs so like accountants or um people on the back end um you know that universal constantly 
upkeeps basically without uh, paying on a per advertising campaign basis. You know, that's what this $22 million distribution fee is, um, offices and personnel. And so that $22 million really cuts into the profitability of this film. Uh, and finally, you know, this seat also does not include the TV and home media revenue uh, for this film. Uh, in the seats, it's only listed as two million, a couple million or so. Whereas, you know, industry insiders say that they're expected down the line that we're going to see sixty-eight million dollars in uh, total TV and home media revenue. Uh, when all of a sudden done, is just at the time of this seat, those had not yet been actualized in the accounting books, and so that's why you see an additional, you know, that sixty-eight million dollar. Revenue is missing from this calculation. So, you know, this kind of, I guess call it, you can call it fudging the numbers, but basically where you, where Hollywood will overstate their costs uh, by adding on additional distribution fees and then understate the revenue by, you know, not counting, um, not counting all of the home media revenue yet. Um, you know, that's basically why people are pretty suspicious of Hollywood accounting in general. Um, you know, that's why people tend to, you know, that's why the third-party verified box office numbers, you know, are pretty important where we can at least figure out that component. And, you know, everything else will kind of come out hopefully in the end, like when Deadline does these once-a-year things. Um, but, yeah, that's just why Hollywood accounting is such a mess. Uh, you know, bringing this back up to current events, uh, Trolls World Tour, um, you know, they moved to PVOD. And this relates to Hollywood accounting because according to The Hollywood Reporter, you know, the two stars of the film, Justin Timberlake, Timberlake and Anna Kendrick, uh, they weren't notified ahead of time that the film would be skipping a theatrical release. Now, obviously, this impacts total revenue and profitability of this film. Um, you know, I'm skeptical. I'm still skeptical that this film will be profitable with VOD only and no box office. Um and apparently there was a bonus to be paid out to certain participants based on a certain box office number. I think the number I saw thrown around was three fifty million. So you know, if they had signed a participation profit participation deal, which all of these star driven films tend to do so, or a lot of them do, you know, this is not what they agreed. They were expecting a level of, of profitability based on having a theatrical release as well as a VOD release. Um, and so, you know, visibility in the VOD numbers is also relatively limited compared to box office numbers. Um, you know, I'm sure that there'll be some agreement between their lawyers. Maybe, like, that deal will get bought out by Universal for, as, like, a cost of, you know, oh, hey, we'll move to VOD. You know, I know you're going to get some deal for, you know, releasing in theaters. Obviously, they're extenuating circumstances, but in order to keep the stars happy and have them work with them again, um, you know, maybe they'll cut them a deal on, you know, maybe we won't pay out 100%, maybe like 80% of your bonus or whatever. Um, but again, I think that's another repercussion of moving to VOD first, where, you know, one, particip bon participation bonuses will have to be restructured moving forward if that becomes the new reality, which, again, participation bonuses are what make some films, you know, obviously they have very, if they have a low cost, you know, appealing, but then if it gets really successful, um, you know, that might hurt. And if, 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 uh, fa if, um, the actors and producers feel that, you know, the, the, the production companies and studios aren't going to, you know, give them a fair shake. And like, there's a chance that the film could go to VOD at any time. Um, that might make them more reluctant to work with studios, right. Or only work on, or maybe it'll be make the production costs more, 
uh, higher upfront if they want to take less back end if there's a chance they'll be going to PVOD. And so the production cost will go higher, but then if the production cost goes higher, then you have the issue of production of you know a higher budget to overcome. Well, in that case, the VOD is definitely not going to be enough to cover it if the production cost is higher and you need to do release in theaters. It kind of, I think, pushes everything back towards more theatrical releases is important in general. Um, but yeah, I think that's just you know something to keep an eye on moving forward. Uh, in any case, that brings us to the end of this box office concept. Uh, as usual, no top five for films uh, numbers this week. Uh, and so here's what I've been watching. Um, I've actually been I actually watched. Uh, so uh, if you didn't know, I'm Filipino. Um, and uh, in light of the coronavirus, uh, coronavirus and everything going on, um, there was this play in the Philippines called Anghuling El Bimbo. Uh, it's based on a. Um, it's based on the music of this famous Filipino band called Eraserheads, um, and you know it's a play about you know growing up in college, nostalgia from the '90s and so on. Um, there was a play that was pretty popular, you know, over the past couple of years. I uh, never got to see it myself, obviously, living here in the states, um, but. They ended up uh, taping the final performance, and air, and then the major news station in the Philippines, ABS-CBN, aired it online on YouTube and on their Facebook page. So I took two, three hours to watch that, stream it at home. Uh, this is all part of you know fundraising reliefs for coronavirus. Um, but yeah, it was pretty pretty good play. Um, unfortunately, it was available only for forty eight hours, so it's pretty gone at this point. But if you can find the copy somewhere um, and you understand Tagalog, I definitely would recommend it. Somehow, it's showing up in Leatherboxed as like a movie supposedly. Um, I'll count it for my count for the year. Um, but yeah, also just been casting up on a lot of anime um, I haven't been watching the last couple of weeks, uh, including this one show, um, Car- Carol and Tuesday, uh, which is a Shinichiro Watanabe film. I, I have another podcast called Yet Another Anime Podcast. I'm going to be doing a retrospective on all of his works, and so I wanted to watch that film before doing so, or that series before doing so. I uh, would recommend. You can find it on Netflix. Um, but yeah, uh, and with that, that wraps up this week's Watts. Uh, if you have any feedback or suggestions, uh, you know, shoot me an email at boxofficewattspodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at BOWattspodcast. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, and Google Play as well. Uh, if you can leave a review there on your podcast service of choice or on podchaser.com, that would be super helpful. Uh, links in the show notes. Numbers used in the show can come, are coming from thenumbers.com or intro and outro music come from Kevin MacLeod. You can find his stuff at incompetech.filmmusic.io. Editing and production is provided by Ninja Boy Media. Until next time, this has been the Box Office Watch. And remember, our watch goes on. Bye, guys. Bye.